Starting a new business during COVID was just another adaptation for Chef D. Levine, who was following in the footsteps of New Orleans legendary Lena Richard. Chef D. is leaving her mark on New Orleans and its visitors. Learn more. It's on Tip of the Tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Dee Levine. She is the owner and chef of the delightful Rue School of Cooking. Welcome, Dee. Thank you. So I really want to know all about your your cooking uh, bona fides. So tell us a little bit about how you got started. So I started cooking very young. I started at seven. I would say I started experimenting more growing into my tween to teen years, but just kind of fundamentally just kind of throwing things together. It was exciting to me. Of course, I had a brother that was willing to try anything I made, good or bad, but I guess it helped us both because he's a cook as well. Oh, So tell us where you studied and where you've worked. Of course. So initially, I never felt that I would be a chef. I was going to be an accountant. I loved numbers, and that was my thing. And then I got to college and realized that I didn't like it as much as I wanted to. So I started to kind of prepare myself for a culinary, I guess, career. So I started at a trade school. And I said, I'm, I'm just going to start small and try it out and see if I like it. I didn't want to do a full-on college experience, just like my previous of accounting, and then realize I didn't like it. But I did. I started at a trade school in the middle of Stillwater, Oklahoma, and it went well. I started to compete locally, um, regionally, and then nationally. And then, of course, I went to culinary school. I went to the CIA in New York. And so... Where have you been since the CIA? Well, once I graduated CIA, I decided to uh, explore just different culinary avenues. I've worked at country clubs. I've done catering. I spent a lot of my time working the grocery store sector. I spent almost 15 years of my life working for Whole Foods. Oh, goodness. And did you do lots of different things for Whole Foods or pretty much the same thing? No, I literally stayed in one department and that was bakery. And yeah, I felt like that's where my heart was. When I started in Marlton, New Jersey, they were a full service bakery. So we baked everything in that Whole Foods from scratch. So everything from bread to cakes to Everything. everything. Had our own separate bread team. They made fresh bread every single day. Ooh, wow. So you really got to learn a lot. I did. Oh, yeah. And so then you went, it, did you come directly to New Orleans from there? Um, yep. Eventually I transferred from Marlton to the Veterans Store. Um, that was my first uh, stop. And of course, I grew my career there very quickly from just regular team member um, coming in as a supervisor and eventually leaving 
as the assistant to the bakery department. And I left to take a job as a bakery team lead for um, the Arabella store on Magazine Street. So you were still in the family of of Whole Foods. That's correct. And it was then that I was going to have my second son, Russell, and I just felt a need to be home with Russell. I wanted to be home with my baby. I was home with my oldest son, and I just felt like that's what I needed to do. But I also needed to make a living, so I had to figure some things out. Um, I always loved baking, and I would bake for family and friends and, you know, church members, that kind of thing. And I said, you know what? I'll just do that, right? That's going to be my new career. And it actually turned into a business. And so what was that business? That was Delightful Cupcakes. And so you made cakes and cupcakes. Yep, that's correct. And so how long did you do that? Um, I worked Delightful Cupcakes almost two years, for about two years. And then we had some changes with the world and the pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's the truth. (laughs) And so what did that mean needed to happen? The pandemic made things very difficult. At that time, I had some really big contracts um, working with some pretty big companies. And a part of that job was delivery. At that time, I couldn't risk doing the delivery at the expense of my family. I live in a multi-generational household. My oldest member now is 83. My youngest member is seven. So if you, you know, go back a couple of years, they were at the most at-risk group. Um, They both were. So I needed to kind of change a little bit. I started working with the LePage Center from Tulane University on how to pivot my business. Um, I moved into more of an online space as, you know, instead of a more, delivery-based option, and it did okay, but not as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, people, the pandemic continued. I mean, it just didn't end. Well, and also, all of those people who became pandemic bakers, Correct. they weren't buying your bakery yeah. products. They were making their own. They, they had the time. Yes. And on top of that, a lot of the restrictions, right? So Things were still restricted in the city. You couldn't have any parties. You couldn't have more than 10 people in one spot at a time. And all of those things kind of put a damper on my particular business and what I was doing. Yes. So what did you do? Um, I started to think outside of the box. I had always wanted to teach. I enjoyed home ec. That was probably like one of my favorite classes. And I always envisioned one day I could retire as a home ec teacher. I started doing teaching cooking classes at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum and found that I enjoyed it more than I thought that I would. And just moving forward with that, just doing some work and just being inspired by Chef Lena Richard helped me to develop the idea for the cooking school. So tell us about Lena Richard. So Lena Richard is an amazing woman. She's done some wonderful things in her career. She's a hard worker. I mean, literally under hard work, I should have her picture. She has done so many things just for the culinary world, especially in my own inspiration or being inspired by her and what she's done. She's owned several restaurants. She's cooked for some really popular families in her time, and she even started her own cooking school. She did live television. She did cooking on TV, kind of like, I guess, the first Food Network, right, would be uh, (laughs) for Chef Lena Richard. And 
she she wrote a cookbook, right? The first African American female to write a cookbook. That's pretty impressive. So, what? Tell me about her cooking show. So Lena Richard was on live. She was on WDSU, which is our local channel six. Um, and that's here in New Orleans. Here in New Orleans. And she was on in 1949. She had a spot that she would cook live on TV twice a week. So she, you know, it's not like that TV magic that we have now that you can kind of cut a segment down to fit it into three minutes. She was actually cooking. She would start beginning to end and she was preparing meals and showing people the live TV audience, how to make those dishes. So it's really a shame, I think, that we can't actually see her the way we can see other people from early television. I remember going down to WDSU and asking them to give us the kinescopes of Lena Richard. And I learned, unfortunately, that she died before the kinescope was invented. That's correct. And so that we don't have any record except the still photos that she was there. And, of course, all of the pictures of her in the newspaper, in the television sections of the newspaper. So her program was popular enough that it was her picture that was selling the newspaper section. Yes. And I think that's really exciting because – Obviously, they're not going to waste that space with somebody that's not making people turn on that dial. Yeah, that's correct. So it had to be very popular. Yep. I mean, she was a force to be reckoned with, with her ability to just intensify flavors. And I mean, even working with some of her recipes in her original book now, the flavor is, it's, it's astonishing. Um, so it's I, incredible. I know that you did that program for the Smithsonian um, in which you uh, took one of her recipes and demonstrated it. Yeah. So you had to really decide which one to pick, and yes. then you had to work with it to kind of modernize it, to present it in a way that is the way people expect today to be presented with a recipe. Yep. So tell me about that experience. So that experience was actually pretty cool um, to do something like that for the Smithsonian. Obviously, going through her entire cookbook, it's like, I need to narrow this down to like five choices. (laughs) Obviously, shrimp was going to be one of those things. I love shrimp. They're easy to get. Obviously, we're in New Orleans. Um, I settled on the shrimp bisque recipe and set off to, you know, let's recreate this recipe. Things are not the same as they were in 1939 as they are now. So when I initially started to do the testing for the recipe, you know, me, I am following everything precisely to the letter that is the accounting side. That's my number side, right? So I have to make sure everything is precise. Um, And then I was having some difficulty. And then I started second-guessing myself, you know, am I doing this properly? Maybe something's missing, Um, I did a little research with some older historians on recipe development and writing recipes and early, early cookbook recipes in the early 18 and 1900s and realizing that obviously some things had to be omitted. You know, they were done by typewriter. There was no, oh, let's make the font, you know, 12 points or we're going to take it down to three points to make everything fit. It was one font. That's it. So if it didn't fit, it got left out. And on top of that, they needed to 
omit or leave out things that was common sense for them. So common sense in 1939, it's not even close to anything (laughs) in 2020 um, at the time when I was really trying to work on this recipe. And things like the convenience of things or whatever was totally different. That's correct. We have a totally different mindset about how we even start to cook something. That's correct. I, even our recipes and how they're written today are different than how she would have formulated the recipe because she literally wrote things down and she cooked it. There was really no formal process. You know, of course, now when you read a recipe in Latter Day or if you open a book now, literally it's step by step and that's how it's supposed to and be. And it's kind of standardized. Correct. You put the things in the order in which that they, they appear in, in the, the, dish. In the recipe correct. and all of that. And you're going to even measure salt and pepper. Yeah. You don't even say salt and pepper to taste yes. the way you used to. Yep. Um, and so that. That precision doesn't appear in the old recipes. No, it doesn't. Um, And even it's interesting um, doing the recipe specifically, you know, one of the things that kind of tripped me up is when I was making the crumb or the crust for this shrimp bisque, it's like, oh, add the eggs, right? But eggs were not listed inside of the recipe. And I'm like, is this one egg? It says eggs. Is it two eggs? How many eggs, right? <laughs> so now you're trying to figure it out. And what size eggs? Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, and then you're thinking back to 1939, and it's like, okay, what's obviously they were probably using brown eggs. Were they using medium eggs? Were they using large eggs? Um, so, of course, I had to go through and do a lot of testing. Um, but it, it didn't go to waste. Obviously, it just wasn't the product that I knew she was producing mm-hmm. and I needed to figure that out mm-hmm. just over time. And, and of course I, I worked it out and it came out great. Well, one of the things that I noticed about the recipe is that it had, of course I've been lucky enough to actually taste the product. <laughs> <too>. <laughs> um, but there are very few ingredients yes. and the complexity of the flavor and the amount of, sort of condensed flavor that there is in the final product is amazing considering how few actual ingredients there are. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that made her an incredible chef. Um, You know, in in that particular recipe, I think if, if my memory serves me correctly, I think you needed like a teaspoon of onion juice. So think about one teaspoon and how small it is. And then onion juice of all things. It's like, really, what is that going to add in the midst of all these other rest, you know, other ingredients, having this shrimp stock? How how is that gonna measure up? But it's there. It's it's incredible how she was able to just figure it out, know what needed to go in. She did a great job with intensifying flavors and literally layering the flavors that you can taste every single thing. And it, it's the cleanest, most delicious food I've made probably in my career. So tell me about onion juice. <laughs> so I could see where you would say, oh, I want the intensity of the onion flavor in this but I don't want to chop onion or even have minced onion because I don't want that texture or I don't want to bulk up the stuffing. Because tell, what is the recipe that you made? What was the name of it? The shrimp bisque. I did shrimp the shrimp bisque. bisque yes. Okay. So shrimp bisque was 
was there stuffing or or some kind of um, breading or whatever? Yep, she did. So she kind of created this stuffing that was an, an additive to the biscuit itself. Um, obviously, to help make it filling, I would imagine, um, which came out wonderful. Very few ingredients, and a part of one of those things was onion juice. So it would have sort of changed it if there had actually been onion in it. Yep. Uh, changed the texture, changed all kinds of things. So she clearly made the intentional decision to just use the flavor from the juice. Yep, that's correct. So how did you decide to do that? (laughs) (laughs) Of course, I had to figure out, you know, okay, I don't need that much, which is awesome. So I'm not trying to blend up an entire onion, right? You could put it in a food processor or, you know, like a Which little spice grinder. Which, of course, they didn't have. They did in, not have. And day. I had to think about what she would have done to get onion juice and clean onion juice at that. So I opted to use a garlic press. Mm-hmm. So I added large pieces of onion inside of a garlic press, and I literally pressed it just to attain the onion juice that I needed. And how much onion did you need to use to get a teaspoon of juice? Oh no, just very little. Okay. Onions are onions are pretty juicy, which uh-huh. is why they have such a an incredible tearing effect. Um, there's a lot of juice in an onion to be had, so I only needed a very small piece. So I remember when I was a child, you could buy onion juice. So it must have been something that people did. Okay, so if this is 1939, you said, was the date of the book? Yep, her book came out in 1939. So that's 11 years before I was born, which isn't that big of a difference. And so I remember, and you could buy it, and it it was kind of like you buy lemon juice today in a sort of lemon. There would be onion juice in something that was more like an onion. And so it must have been some kind of product that people used um, regularly at the time. Yeah. And so that kind of leaves you down another rabbit hole. If you course, wanted to go I mean, down the, uh, the really onion could, juice rabbit hole. Yes. I mean, you always think about, you know, were they doing it to preserve the onions? You know, once you picked onion, did they last that long? What could I do to try to make it last longer? We could juice it, right? We could just squeeze them out. I, I don't know, but definitely there's a lot to be had to know that you just needed onion juice at that point. Right. And so what kind of seasonings did she use besides onion juice? Um, Salt and pepper, cayenne. That <laughs> was it. That's pretty much it, yeah. Yeah. There was no, like, we have garlic powder and onion powder and, you know, a lot of those dry um, herbs. Nope. Not at all. <sighs> well, tell me also... How you made the broth, because I also thought the broth was outstanding. Yeah, so that definitely took some time. Obviously, I started with shrimp. We needed to peel and devein the shrimp, and for this particular recipe, we stuffed the shrimp heads, and that was something that she had in her original recipe. So I needed to figure that out. So, you know, I I, I feel like shrimp now aren't as strong as they may have been in 1939 when she was stuffed. Stuffing them, I had a couple of breakages, but you know it was still all able to go in to intensify the flavor of the stock. And it wasn't a boiled thing; it was a simmer thing, something mm-hmm. that really kind of that low and slow, you know, just barely up temperature, you know, just heat enough to steam it, and then that was it. It turned it off and let it sit, and 
get this wonderful, wonderful flavor for the base of the shrimp bisque. So I think that those bisques, both crawfish bisque and shrimp bisque, were dishes that were made with economy in mind. Correct. Because you didn't just chop up some shrimp and have as many as you wanted the way we talk about doing it today. And imagine the crawfish, for example, especially if you were getting them one at a time on a string in a hole, yeah. uh, you know, Wearing it's like, oh, I have 12. That's enough. <laughs> <laughs> and then you take those little tails and you chop them up with cornmeal or whatever so that you can stretch you that stretch yeah. so that it covers as many people as you need to feed. Correct. And that was one of the reasons why I would imagine she needed a stuffing for, for shrimp her head. shrimp heads. Yes. Yeah, and, and specifically, like the shrimp that she used, they were minced. So think about that process of mincing shrimp. That's a lot of chopping. And, you know, but it was something that she needed to make sure that the flavor was there. Yeah, yeah. Shrimp in every bite, literally. So tell me now more about the School of Cooking. You are, I, I have seen this discussed, probably now the second African-American woman in the city of New Orleans to have her own cooking school? That's correct. After Lena Richard. After Chef Lena Richard. And so what does that mean for your future? That is incredible. Obviously, I'm surrounded by a museum, never f- imagining I would be in history in that way. You know, everybody wants to be known for their accomplishments, but to know that I had done something that hadn't been done in over almost 80 years mm-hmm. by a woman that I admire. And, you know, now I'm trying to find out as much as I can about Lena Richard. But to be able to follow in her footsteps to lead the path to my career has been amazing. So what do you envision for your cooking school? So right now, um, obviously, my school is a little bit different from Chef Lena Richard. When she started the school, it was to empower locals, African-American people, minorities, to enable them to get better paying jobs. So she wanted to kind of teach them a little bit ahead of the curve, right? So mm-hmm. you're not starting from zero. The school that I am operating and running right now is a little different. Um, I am preserving the classics. I want people to know what original, classic, Creole, and Cajun cuisine, what it was, what it is, and why it was as popular as it is. People come here from all over the world to eat this food. And because it's happening in a museum... They get a cultural context, too. That's correct, and that's the important piece. Um, You know, it's one thing to eat something, but you are fully submerged when you enter this museum. Not only are you getting a hands-on experience that's showing you literally how this food was made, you're actually getting just this incredible um, information about how it it came to be, where these ingredients came from, and you know, just how it has transformed our culture here in New Orleans. And so um, is there a cookbook in your future? Of course. Um, <laughs> yes, I have been working on a cookbook now, I feel like forever. Um, eventually, we'll, we'll be getting it published soon. Um, but yeah, I've been working on just recipes that I enjoy making with for my family and for the public, you know, the ones that I use on my television show that I get the best response from. Of course, I want to 
share those recipes with the world. So tell us about the television spots you do. So I do a local segment on WWL um, Channel 4 here in New Orleans on Saturdays. I am in the 10 o'clock news hour. And I have a segment of about five to six minutes that I prepare dishes and show people how to make things to make their lives easier is, is what my goal is, to make delicious food and to make it easier. I've been working with WWL now for almost two years, um, and I can tape that show literally inside of my cooking school now. And so also you do everything. You do the production, you do the editing, you do all sorts yeah, of That things. is correct. <laughs> um, thanks to the pandemic. <laughs> you know, I didn't have the luxury of having the WWL studio and staff that I had previously. But now it enabled me to learn a little bit more about television production and, you know, how to record, how to edit. Um just adding in overhead shots and how to make things more appealing. I had to learn hands down on my own. Um, Thanks to YouTube and, you know, trial and error, I was able to come up with some really amazing videos. I mean, I think you have come up with some amazing videos that are really great. And then how did you decide what you're going to do your spots on? I have to, to say this. What I admire so much about what you do is that you actually do complicated dishes because when I was doing spots on television, all I could think of is how simple can I make this so I don't have to carry all kinds of equipment and whatever to the studio. (laughs) So I will say, first and foremost, I never make anything that I won't eat. Oh, of course. Um, So, you know, sometimes people will come and, you know, make this big production and make a recipe and then they're like, I don't even eat that. I hate that. I'm never eating that, but it looked great on TV, right? Um, No, everything that I actually make, I enjoy eating, which is a lot of things. Um, I'm very versed in foodology. I love to eat just about everything. Um, So when I'm thinking about what recipes I'm going to make for the week, I try to be as seasonal as possible as far as if it's just the weather or if it's obviously fresh items that are in season at that time, things that I love. And and that's it. I go from there. Well, this has been really great, a great opportunity to talk to you about walking in the footsteps of Lena Richard as well as looking to the future and things that you're, you're planning to do. Any other future things that we need to talk about? Um, obviously this cookbook is coming out. I'm working on that. I am hopefully in the works of working on a product line. I mean, I want to have my own cooking equipment, just like so many others, obviously in a different spin being that, you know, I want to be one of the first African-American women to continue in this tradition to bring more awareness and, and just to share my life and my history and my food with everybody. Well, I'm glad that you're doing it so close to me so that I get to taste it all the time. (laughs) So thanks so much for being with us. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, Join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. 
If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.